Good morning, dear saints, and blessed epiphany, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Thursday, January 25th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Well, we're closing out our study of not only this most recent letter of Paul to the Colossians, but our, our three-part study of Paul's letters. We began with Ephesians and went to Philippians, and now we're finishing up Colossians with chapter 4. Now, Paul finishes Colossians with some practical advice and personal notes, as he is known to do. He emphasizes the importance of persistent prayer, wise behavior toward non-believers, and of course, gracious speech. He requests prayers for his own ministry, and he encourages the saints to make the most of every opportunity in spreading the gospel. This final chapter blends everyday Christian practices with Paul's own personal touches, and it underlines the significance of prayer and wisdom and thoughtful communication within the Christian community. And I'm so grateful to all our listeners who tune in, whether you're tuning in over the air in St. Louis or online, live or on demand at KFUO.org. Perhaps you're using the KFUO app or your own smart speaker. Maybe you're using a podcasting app. It doesn't matter to me how you tune in. I'm just glad you're here. You're the reason the show exists. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. If that interests you, when you get time, go visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Be sure to spell it right, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail. Or you can find me on Facebook. Search for Phil Boo. Send me a friend request. Send me a, a, a what, what do they call them, a message. I'll, I'll definitely answer. And, uh, and if I'm live, which isn't today, I'm afraid, we're pre-recorded. But if I'm live, I can get your, your questions and your comments out on the air through those ways. Well, without any further ado, joining us this morning, it's the Reverend Chris Mathis. He's the pastor of Epiphany Lutheran Church in Castle Rock, Colorado. Good morning, Pastor Mathis, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and I love that you're coming to us from Colorado. Now, here I am in the southwest corner of Minnesota. It's pretty chilly. I don't really know what the weather's like in Colorado. How's, how's it outside where you are? Well, not too bad right now. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be warming up into the 30s, but normally this time of year uh, in the front range of Colorado, we could expect uh, highs in January in the mid-40s. We had a real bad cold snap uh, a few days ago. It was minus 18, but that's very unusual here. Okay, wow. Yeah, no, we have minus 18, but it's pretty par for the course, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I still don't like it. Cold is gold. As I, uh, is the uh, Dan, who's the board operator and, and one of the great guys who were behind the scenes at KFUO, he and I have said a couple of times, you know, once it gets cold, a certain cold, it just, it's just cold. It almost doesn't matter yeah. whether it's negative two or negative 18. It's just cold. It's just negative. <laughs> yeah, right. It is. It is. Uh, when I used to do some snowmobiling at my first call, which was back in northern Minnesota, we had about 80 inches of snow a year or something crazy like that. 
but I actually liked it when it was in the negatives because it just felt more comfortable uh, when you're all bundled up. But I don't do that much anymore, and now I'm not as big of a fan. T tell us a little bit about your congregation. How's the Lord working through you and the saints at Epiphany? And maybe a little bit about yourself. This is your first time on the show with me. And so, yeah, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Well, Pastor Boo, uh, Epiphany is uh, just celebrating our 25th anniversary. January 6th, the Epiphany of Our Lord was our congregational anniversary. And so we've been uh, in this uh, area for 25 years doing ministry. Um we also, uh, you know, we're at elevation of about 6,200 feet. So we like to boast that we're a thousand feet higher than the mile high city of Denver, um, which is about a 20 minute drive to the north of us. Um, you know, our, our, we are um, a bedroom community for both the Denver and Colorado Springs, but uh, have be quite a few people here in town itself, about 80,000 people. And uh, we are one of two LCMS congregations in town here. Um, very blessed to uh, be serving in word and, sacrament, word and Sacrament ministry here. We say that our mission is to shine the light of Christ in Castle Rock. And uh, we are especially doing that through, uh, through our music ministry, our children's ministry, and Orphan Grain Train, which we have a very large Orphan Grain Train collection site here. We ship about four or five uh, semi-truck loads of clothing, bicycles, medical supplies, and other things each year. And it's a big part of who we are. That's I just think that's fantastic. And frankly, Epiphany Lutheran Church, what a wonderful name. I mean, it makes sense that that's your congregation's anniversary, but... You know, the goal of all our congregations is to reveal the Lord to the nations and our communities. And so, yeah, in a way, we're all Epiphany Lutheran churches. But anyway, I just, I love that name. Brother, are you are you married, kids? What's the situation there? So my wife, Lisa, and I have three children, uh, two boys and a girl, uh, varying in age from uh, 11 years old down to five years old. That's wonderful. Well, folks, yeah. you know, the, the brother pastor here, Mathis, he's no stranger to this program. He's been on before. In fact, I, I think the last three times you've been on, it's been a different host. So I'm grateful that you're here with me uh, following. I am in uh, Brady Finner's footsteps and him and AJ Espinosa's. But I'm glad to have you on. I'm glad to finish up Colossians with you. I think we should just get to it without any further ado. Would you please start us off with prayer? Absolutely. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, uh, we love you and praise you, and we give thanks for this day. Your mercies are new every morning, and if it were not for your grace, none of us would be able to stand before you. Um, but we stand before you as, as sons and not slaves because our brother Jesus has won redemption for us by dying on the cross for our sins and rising victoriously to give us new life. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would... Uh, that you would give us an extra measure of your spirit to be able to hear and, and, and mark your word and to really take it in through our ears, into our minds and our hearts. And Lord, that we would have great delight and great joy in your holy word. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I don't know if you know this um, or remember this, I should say, but today, uh, January 25th, the, the feast day or the commemoration that the church remembers is the conversion of St. Paul, which I think oh, wow. is uh, kind of a, not a coincidence because it's hard to be in the New Testament without talking about St. Paul, but it is serendipitous for today as we close out our, our the trio of Paul's letters that we've been studying. So, um the commemoration of the conversion of St. Paul, of course, recalls when Jesus comes to him in a blinding light and reveals to Paul that it is, in fact, God who he was persecuting when he persecuted the church. And now we're going to hear from that same persecutor of the church all of this just warm and loving encouragement and teaching. It's just amazing. And Paul, I think... Obviously, Paul didn't believe in super apostles, and neither do we. Uh, he struggled mm -mm. with people thinking he was better. But the preeminence of Paul, especially in his writings, I think really resonate with us so much because of where he came from. I mean, he literally left behind a life of persecuting the church to be the one who's persecuted the most during his time for spreading the gospel. And it really shows, too, that no matter how much you... Um, you know, no matter how much at enmity with God you may uh, be when you've, you know, right before you first come to faith, nevertheless, um, you know, you can never be too far for his love and forgiveness to reach you because the, uh, the shadow of the cross reaches very far. Yes, it does. It does. Well, let's get into our text today, though. So oh, i got to click this button so I can open up my Bible. We are now in chapter 4. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 of Colossians really is finishing up what we talked about in chapter 3. Uh, so mm -hmm. I will read it, but we're probably not going to treat it very much because it was treated yesterday or last time we met. So when we talked about rules for Christian households, he begins with wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And then in one, he finishes that thought by saying, masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So I obviously want to keep going, which will be the bulk of our conversation, but since we did dip our toes a little bit into the previous chapter with this one, uh, do you want to catch us up a little bit? Like what has been going on to uh, prepare us for these final instructions and greetings that Paul wants to give us? Sure. Well, uh, the, the, the Colossian uh, correspondence is very similar in outline to Ephesians, which you've also recently studied and, um, you know, and, and dovetails with Philemon also, as many of the same people that we talk about in the end are going to, that are mentioned in Philemon are also mentioned in the final greetings here. Um, uh, the, the ethical, um, exhortations, the paranesis, if you will, the encouragement to live a life of love for God and neighbor in response to the gospel is what Paul has been working on here. And especially as you pointed out, focusing on uh, households, um, I, I, and and really now what he does as we transition from verse one to verse two, um, what follows in his uh, further instructions a lot of times in the epistles, it may seem like a lot of miscellanea, but it's not. It's not uh, trivial in any way. And in fact, 
uh, sometimes his most practical nuts and bolts, down to earth, rubber hits the road kind of treatment of the Christian life will come in some of these things that we are about to read. I'm glad that you said that because sometimes, and I don't say it in a dismissive way, but I like to call these parts of Paul's letters the housekeeping, right? It's it's at the end of the letter. He's kind of almost out of the vellum or whatever, you know, and, and he wants to do a little housekeeping. But yeah, I'd never say that to diminish what happens there. In fact, just as we, you know, not too long ago, a few days ago, when we finished up, uh, in that case, Philippians, you know, it was just fascinating to see in these last moments Paul is, you know, trying to address a problem within the congregation. He urges them toward uh, having faith in God and, and sending up their prayers to relieve their anxieties and reminding them of of Christ's work in their life. And and so, yeah, if you sort of treat it as, oh well, you know, this is just the nuts and bolts, a little couple things at the end. Yeah, we definitely miss out. And and today, yeah, it, the the editors of the ESV label it further instructions and final greetings. Uh, miscellaneous was probably on their mind, but I think we're going to learn quite a bit from it. I'm going to go ahead and read then the verses two through six to get us started. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be generous or gracious, pardon me, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So it begins pretty, you know, normally, right? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Always good advice. But He's looking for a specific request. He's putting something on the prayer list here. He's saying, so that God may open to us a door for the word. You know, in his last letter, he gives them greetings from the household of Caesar. So God's certainly working through Paul's imprisonment. Um, what doors are he wanting open? Is it just, is it the jail cell doors or is it something greater? Well, I I think that any prisoner would certainly want the uh, jail cell doors to be open for them. But, um, and if I recall in historical context, this is from Paul's first imprisonment. Um, Cause it was, I believe when he wrote second Timothy, that it was his second and final imprisonment where he was pretty sure he was going to die. Um, so, you know, in these letters, there is still um, definitely a hopefulness um, that he will be able to, uh, to get out. But, what he really is praying for is that he's he's asking for prayers for for pastors and other servants of the church, so that uh, they can speak and proclaim and share the word of God. Um, it, if you don't mind, I just wanted to point out too that, that on verse two, mm-hmm. when he tells us to to be steadfast in prayer and being watchful, it it recalls. Also, the, the the statement of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to watch and pray. Um, the prayer and watchfulness go together, and we certainly want to uh, watch and pray that we not enter into temptation. But we also want to um, 
be able to watch our our leaders. Paul will often talk about, um, you know, imitation of his ministry and his walk of life as he himself imitates Christ. You know, that's in the Philippian correspondence, of course. And then, um, you know, this idea of praying for pastors so that they can preach the word. It might sound strange to some people, but um, we need a lot of prayer because as 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 preachers and teachers of the word, we have a huge target on our backs. Um, the devil loves nothing more than to take us out. Um, you know, if he can't uh, get us to wreck our ministry through gross public sin, then he will tempt us to um, despair and to uh, feelings of, um, you know, ennui or melancholy or akedia, um, just sort of a boredom. And and if and if he can't if he can't use that to, to to get us to lose our heart and love for sharing the word, then um, you know he may actually just take us out. You know, sometimes he'll send persecution. Um, you know, we've also heard of pastors um, dying in sudden and horrific car accidents and things like that. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but, um, we, we really do need a lot of prayer so that we can keep speaking the good news of God's forgiveness and also the law that shows our need for a savior, um, in our congregations and in our community. And and you, you mentioned those who are are called to proclaim the word and perhaps even be leaders in congregations. But obviously this is just the same case for anyone who's out there striving to do the Lord's will. Satan's mm-hmm. ready to disenfranchise you. He, he wants you to feel, first of all, the temptation that he sends your way is so that you can then fall into it and feel as if, you know, God doesn't love you or that you aren't worthy of what God wants to do through you. And so forgiveness is important, but then that prayer to not fall into those things, obviously that's better than asking for forgiveness is, is asking for the strength to withstand them. And, and, and so, yes, anybody who's out there doing the Lord's work, I think meets with a lot of resistance from, from society, from the accuser, uh, and even from their own sinful natures. It, it recalls when I was a seminary, by the way, I should ask you, which seminary did you go to? I was St. Louis, 2007. Excellent. All right. So we went to the same seminary together. Uh, Then you'll recall that St. Louis Seminary sits, and I can't speak about Fort Wayne, but I'm sure it's similar. Uh, St. Louis Seminary sits on 88 acres of this sort of beautiful, almost parkland right outside of St. Louis in Clayton. Uh, uh, Where is that? Missouri. Uh, And when people visit, they often comment about how peaceful it feels how wonderful it is they they say oh it's it's almost like a monastery almost you know and I, I guess they get that idea from all the lord's work being done but for those who are on the campus there's a lot of resistance from the devil there's a lot of of anxieties and a lot of 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 worry about the future and that's those little things not the big things but those little things are what I think torment God's people the most. We saw that in Philippians. We see it in Colossians. And so it makes sense that he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. That is, he remind, he doesn't think they're not praying. He just wants them to keep praying. But he does say, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. I think that with thanksgiving is an important point 
I mean, he began back in chapter two by saying, you know, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. But I, one thing you see a lot from Paul not is, of course, the call for unity, but then also the call to be thankful. That's hard for us to get our mind around considering where Paul is writing this from. Yeah, very few people would be content or even find joy in a prison cell. Um, we know from the end of Philippians 4, you know, that he had learned how to be content in every situation. Um, and and yet we we always have things for which to give thanks. The the fact that we are drawing breath and the fact that we have a roof over our head, the fact that we the Lord gives us daily bread, all of those first article gifts are cause enough for thanksgiving. But the greatest gift of all is the salvation that has been won by Christ for us and given to us freely as a gift. And if if we did not have Christ's forgiveness, we would not have a hope in the world, this world or the next. Um, and so we can always be thankful for for that. I, you know, F Philippians four uh, talks about how don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we can always find something uh, to be thankful for. Um, to God. I have a friend who, uh, a pastor friend, a mentor of mine, who's, who said that when he is feeling worried or like complaining, he will um, make a list of 50 things or people or gifts of God that he's thankful for. And, you know, you have to start really thinking about a lot of things because, you know, you can right off the bat say, you know, my job, my church, my family, um, but then consider very uh, closely different aspects of your ministry, people who do pray for you and encourage you, um, people in your family, um, you know, special traits that you're thankful for about each of your children or your spouse. Um, and so there's always a lot to be thankful for. Right. We have, you know, what is, what does he say? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, et cetera, et cetera. Think about these things. You know, he said that in Philippians, of course, and it's just on my mind because we just finished up Philippians, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, it, it is, it's this idea that whenever you're faced with the temptations of the devil or the persecutions of the world, Paul's telling us multiple times, the Holy Spirit's telling us through Paul, that we should remember our blessings. It's not just about thinking positive thoughts or good vibes. It's about remembering the concrete uh, blessings that we receive from God and then, you know, recalling the promises that we have from him. Now, I do like, though, as we look, and he, he switches gears a little bit because he's saying pray for us, pray for yourselves. But then in verse 5, I think he says something that every Christian needs to take to heart. And I think it's something that we all could grow in our ability to do. Verse 5 and 6 again, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Right now in my congregation, 
we are doing a study that I have called Witnessing to the Woke. <laughs> and it is, uh, we start. We started with a cultural Marxism and we're moving into a lot of the so-called woke ideology. But what's really important as we go through learning why people think these ways and how we can witness to them, it's important to remember this verse, right? Christians get no value out of owning, so to speak, to use internet language, owning our enemies or, or you know, trying to win arguments. No, it's about winning hearts. And so mm -hmm. this is some pretty valuable advice, wouldn't you say? I do. I, you can, you'll never be able to argue somebody into the kingdom of God. Uh, I often talk with my people about the fact that the, the Great Commission is given to the whole church and in, and really our lay people have a pulpit in their vocation as they love and serve their neighbor with the gifts and abilities he's given them. But, you know, you, you'll never be able to argue somebody into the kingdom of God. Our job is simply to tell the story, um, to love people where they're at and to uh, sometimes almost we have to even uh, earn uh, a right to be heard in, in people's lives. The old saying that it's kind of overused, but still people don't uh, care what you know until they know that you care. Mm -hmm. and no, I think that is an absolute va a valuable saying. You're right. It's overused, but it's overused for a point. We mm -hmm. need to build relationships with people. Um, now we think of, Paul, we think of Jesus, of course, we think of the prophets, you know, they had relationships with these people and we forget that, you know, Paul has a relationship with the folks at uh, Colossa and uh, Philippi and everywhere else. So he's able to write them and say, you know, these are instructions, do these things. But even then he couches his arguments with grace. People criticize modern pastors for being too winsome sometimes. And, and I think that's a valid criticism because while we certainly want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders and make the best use of our time and let our speech be gracious, that doesn't mean we refrain from speaking the truth. So speaking the yeah. truth in love requires both being truthful and of course, doing it in the gentlest way. I, I think we have to be very careful though, that we don't fall off as comes up often on this show, that we don't fall off on the other side of the horse. On the one side, we're not there to win arguments, but to win hearts. Uh, uh, but if but if you fall off on the other side, then you're so gracious and winsome, you're, you're trying to put everything in the best construction to the point where you're not really saying anything substantive at all. Well, grace means covering sin or and removing sin, and so um, it doesn't mean pretending that there isn't sin. Right, and so it is. It's not loving. Ultimately, it's not loving to our neighbor to um, let them go the path of destruction without any attempt to call them back um, to, to safety, to, to Jesus, to repentance. I often liken it to, um, you know, if, 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 you, if you know that, um, you know, there's danger ahead on the road, um, maybe there's a herd of deer. Maybe there is a bridge that's out. And if you um, are coming from that direction and you see another car coming and you just sort of, you know, wave at them or ignore them and don't do any attempt to let them know there's danger, you are um, culpable. 
Um, you are not without blame, not certainly not guilty for their sin, but, but guilty of an unloving indifference. And, and I think that when we walk in love toward, when we walk um, in wisdom toward outsiders, it also means that we need to, um, you know, walk the talk that we are living what uh, we preach. Obviously, we're sinners. We make mistakes and we fail to keep God's law perfectly. But, um, you know, we don't want to give unbelievers an excuse to reject the gospel because of us, either because we, you know, ha- you know, you hear all the time about how, um, you know, when, when, when a pastor takes a hard fall um, or is exposed sometimes by the media for being a hypocrite, you know, we've heard of all, all kinds of church scandals um, over the years throughout the country. Um, you know, that, that gives people a reason to say that we don't have, we don't know what we're talking about. We don't have something worth saying. And so um, not only do we want to, um, call to repentance, but we also want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance ourselves. And, and that example is also what's really important because the world already expects that Christians think that we are holier than thou and that we're not sinners and they are, which is a mischaracterization of what Christians truly believe. With that said though, the church has some blame in giving people that impression. So part of our witness must be just as it is with Paul's witness, that we are chief of sinners, right? That that God mm-hmm. forgives us. That's how we know how gracious he is because we need that forgiveness too. Well, I can't yeah. wait to hear uh, uh, what you have to say as we continue, but we are right up against a break. So we're going to have to take that break, folks. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Mathis and I will keep on going, finishing up Colossians with chapter four. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Chris Mathis. He's the pastor of Epiphany Lutheran Church in Castle Rock, Colorado. Friends, remember that you can reach out to me at pastorboo at gmail.com or through Facebook with your questions and your comments and more. Now, getting back to the text, I kind of had to cut the conversation short a little bit before the break, but we were just finishing up this idea of walking in wisdom with outsiders and making the best use of the time. Maybe expand a little bit. I, I think you could also define that redeeming the time. Uh-huh. Uh, what does he mean by making the best use of the time? I think we touched on everything else, but what does that mean? Yeah, the best use of the time. I mean, 
The reality is that our lives have a limit. We are going to die or Christ is going to come back. Um, and whichever one happens first uh, will be the cutoff for the time that we have to be able to uh, love and serve others and to share the good news with those who do not yet believe. Um, in Ephesians, he says something similar. He adds on, uh, because the days are evil, um, to this idea of uh, of making the best use of the time. And so as Christians, we need to have our times of Sabbath and rest, but we also, we don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be um, doing foolish or sinful things. Um, we want to uh, live out our vocation and as as father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, neighbor, friend, and whatever your uh, particular calling in life may be. We want to do that to the best of our ability, to the best of God's glory, um, because there is a time when we won't be able to. I think of when Jesus said, uh, we must work while it is daytime, for night is coming when no one can work. <laughs> right. So do it while you can and do it the best you can. Well, and another thing Jesus said uh, in various places, but I'm going to pick it up from Mark. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Paul picks up on that too when he talks about letting your speech be gracious, which we've already discussed before the break, but then he says seasoned with salt. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> what Seasoned with salt. I, you know, I, I don't know. I think maybe being salty has a little bit of a different connotation in our world today, or maybe it doesn't. How would you? Especially if you're a sailor. Um, right, uh, right, right. A right. salty sailor. But uh, no, salt was, uh, is, has always been an essential nutrient for our bodies and for our lives. Um, and certainly it is one of the electrolytes you're going to find in your refreshing sports drinks to careful not to do any product placement there. Um, your sports <laughs> drinks, you know, after your workout, you need salt uh, to be able to function and live. And uh, certainly where, what you quoted from the Sermon on the Mount talks about the way that salt preserves um, food, life, society. Um, and the church has that presence in the world. But salt was also a part of the sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle and temple, um, the, the incense that was burned on the altar and also some of the grain offerings that were given were also mixed with salt. And so the salt recalls, um, some of the offerings given in, um, the old Testament era worship. And I, I don't want to, um, conjecture too far, but you know, the offering that we give is our very selves to God's um, service. And so maybe there's an allusion to those temple offerings here and then the offering that we make as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. I think that's interesting and certainly would be on their mind when you when you think about that. You know, so we have salt and it's used for preserving and some uh, medicinally, right? It's a vital nutrient, you know, as you talked about. Uh, electrolytes and such, used for religious purposes. Um, salt is also used to write flavor food, make it palatable. Uh, yeah. Is there some sense here that he's saying, make your speech be 
palatable and, and certainly not with the connotation that you're, we might say sugarcoating it today, but I think in mm -hmm. this context, it's more about, I guess, answering in such a way so that each person is receiving the word in the way that they need it. Uh, because it's followed by the clause so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So I've also thought about, in addition to the things that you said, just the fact that, you know, you, you have to kind of adjust it to each person and not the truth, but the approach. I, I don't know. Is there anything to that? I think there is. You certainly don't want to use words or um, ideas beyond somebody's understanding. Um, and, and, and that is certainly part of it. Um, one of the commentaries I looked at had uh, what I thought was an amusing statement too, which was that, uh, you know, if, if you know better, don't use, uh, you know, bad grammar, follow the conventions of language. Oh, sure. And that, that was kind of funny to me, but. Um, <laughs> well, I, I gotta tell but, you, I gotta interject here. It's extra funny to me because when I was growing up, I always grew up in a, in a, uh, a Christian household. Um, people know my background. If they listen to the show regularly, I, I am a recovering Baptist. But, but I grew up being taught rightly that the word of God is the word of God, that the Bible is God's word and, and, and error free. So as a kid, I just assumed that meant that the grammar was perfect. The words were perfect. Uh, so if it was written in such a way in the Bible, I thought, well, then that was perfect. <laughs> uh, even to like the words I could use, especially the uh, King James version, you can find some pretty colorful words that you can use but as a kid. That was really important. Oh, it's in the Bible. But oh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, but God's word is perfect, certainly not in a grammatical sense. But I but I just thought about that when you were talking about that commentator yeah. saying you need to use good grammar. But but that makes sense. You know, you need to talk in a way that makes uh, that that people can understand what you're saying. That, that's the skill of a good them. preacher and a good teacher. Um, I know that a lot of guys, they come fresh out of seminary, myself included, as I look back at some of my old sermons. And it's like you do move from the point where you're trying to impress people that you know fancy words and terms and Latin phrases to mm -hmm. you really just want to tell people about Jesus. And that's that's a good move. Some some people make that move sooner than later, but that's even a struggle for us, knowing how to address people where they're at. Yeah. And part of that too is the right division or the, you know, the um, you know, making it the proper distinction between law and gospel. Mm -hmm. So you know, when we have friends and we're and, and, and people we have a relationship with and they come to the point where they do repent, we need to take note and not, you know, just pile it on more uh, with with uh, with the law. To, you know, we don't want to drive them to guilt and shame. We want to drive them to Jesus. And so um, you have to know when to. Um, you know you have to know when, when, when there's enough salt and when you need to bring the honey of the gospel. Um, and Rightly that's not handling easy. the word of truth or the word of God. Mm -hmm. I've heard it used and of course, proper distinctions. Yeah. It, it, and taking it back to our conversation earlier, how are you able to do that? If you don't have a relationship with the person, if you don't know what they need, you don't know what their fears and anxieties are. You don't know what their sins are. So again, this isn't just about banging on doors and telling people they need Jesus. This is about building up relationships with people so that you can, as you said earlier, in some cases, earn the right to speak to them. 
Well, are you ready to move on? Because I think we'll move into verse seven now because I don't want to run out of time. And yes. he is now giving his final greetings. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in uh, Laodicea, or Laodicea, however you want to say it, and in uh, Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That's, that's where I'm going to end. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up this last verse at the very end. So that's okay. at the end of 17. So yeah, so he starts by doing a lot of name dropping, which, as I said when we finished up Philippians and other places, I love it when he does this. These are people who are active in a real church, really in history, people who we might not have heard about otherwise. I just love hearing about the saints working in the churches here. And, and it shows too, um, you know, the personal connections that there are. We always talk about how small the world is because of, you know, the internet or, you know, in the Missouri Synod, I, the people used to play that game of seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh yeah. You know, I think sometimes there's only three degrees of separation in the Missouri Synod and, uh, you know, people are very connected. But you, you tend to feel um, uh, an openness, even if you don't know somebody. I, I think it's worth pointing out that um, as far as I remember, that, that Colossa is one of the places that Paul never visited. Um, he did not, I, I don't believe that he knew the Colossians personally. Um, he knew people from there, but he had not been there. And so these common um these friends in common were a connection that he could use to show that even though he hadn't met some of the people in the church in person he did have a real heart and a real connection to them um and it, it also shows that paul didn't do ministry alone um you know he he always he, of course the opening of the letter he says he includes timothy as um you know, one of the co-writers of the letter, but, you know, Paul didn't do ministry alone. The Lord Jesus encouraged the 72 to go two by two. Um, and even though you may be, you know, sometimes the sole pastor in a congregation, or maybe, you know, depending on your context, maybe you're the only Sunday school teacher or you're, um, the reality is, is that we are, we, we do ministry with others. And so, 
isolation um, is is kills the soul and lays us open to all kinds of temptation. And so it's important for us to have connection with other Christians, other volunteers at our church, other um, pastors of other congregations, so that we we have a sense of the wider connection and um, both for fellowship, for encouragement, and also to help guard against temptation. Absolutely. And, and that, and that guarding against temptation is incredibly important because Paul recognizes that these, remember we have 2000 years of a cloud of witnesses to rely on. These are the first Christians. (laughs) And so that temptation to return to their old ways, their temptation to go into sin, uh, people telling them, listen, this is a new thing. You're doing something crazy. This this isn't even Judaism, what you're doing. There's so mm-hmm. many temptations to just fall back in. Um, and so, yeah, he mentions these folks by by name. He encourages them. Some of them we've heard of before, though, like Onesimus. It's hard to forget mm-hmm. him. Uh, you know, he's a slave. We we learn about him in Philemon, in the, Paul's letter to Philemon. Um, we... Uh, we hear about some of these others, of course, Barnabas and, and, and Mark. And we, we, also, we also see, and I think this is interesting, and I hate to skip right to the end, but we see, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So there's like inside information that I don't know that we have a lot of information about. I mean, we hear about him in Philemon, but we don't know, is that a struggle he's having? Is it just having? Is it just encouragement? So I, I also think it's fascinating to read these letters and say, you know, we're not told every single thing about what's going on in the congregation because, well, it's none of our business. <laughs> and if he had a different way of, of communicating with people, he might not even mention it. But I, again, I'm glad he does. Yeah. And his word to Archippus in verse 17 reminds me of in Second Timothy, where he tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Mm-hmm. Um it could so like you said it could be a general encouragement to a fellow pastor but yeah if he had a struggle um and what 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 christian or what pastor doesn't have right. a struggle in their in their um calling from time to time agreed agreed well anything else about this section that we want to make sure people know i if i if i may i'd really like Please. to um mention that two things that caught my attention. Number one, the fact that he commends Mark to the Colossians, uh, because in Acts, we actually read about a falling out that, uh, that Paul and Barnabas had over Mark in Acts 15 after Paul's first missionary journey, um, because Mark had started out with them on the trip. And then for whatever reason, we don't know why, but he had left the mission. He had gone home. And so at one point, Paul kind of thought that, um, you know, Mark was a flake. And so when they started to prepare for the second missionary journey, um, Paul and Barnabas went separate directions because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark again. And Paul was like, no way. The dude is a lightweight, not going to bring him, not going (laughs) to, you know, I'm, I'm embellishing a little bit, but not going to waste time and energy on somebody who, you know, puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Right. But by the time you get here, um, you know, you can see that there's a reconciliation that has taken place with Barnabas and with Mark because he sends greetings. 
Mark is obviously with him. Um, and at the end of second Timothy, he'll even ask Timothy to bring Mark with him while Paul is in prison, um, to, to minister. And he says, he's useful to me. Um, and so I, I just think it's worth noting that even though Paul had a strong personality, um, you know, like the time that he opposed Peter to his face in Galatians two and things like that, even though Paul had a strong personality, he did value relationships and he didn't just write people off. And when there was a, uh, contention when there was a conflict um even though we don't necessarily read how the reconciliation happened we do have the fact from these personal greetings that it did happen and so um reconciliation with our brothers and sisters is hugely important in the christian life and paul did model that even if he had a strong personality and paul speaks elsewhere of the divisions that sort of happen around personalities right you know mm -hmm. um, some uh, follow Apollo, some follow Paul, et cetera. I follow Christ, et cetera. Well, I wonder, and I've always wondered this, when you read this part, he says, concerning whom you've received instructions. So he's told them in advance about Mark that he might be coming, mm -hmm. I suppose. But I love how he says, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, I'm just speculating, unless you know better, but I'm thinking there probably were people who were like, my gosh, if if Paul and him had a falling out, I don't want to talk to him either. And so you have this very explicit, you know, you need to welcome him, um, despite what you probably have heard about what's happened. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Do you, do you see it that way at all? You know, I never had thought about that before, but I think that's actually very in insightful. Um, yeah, because as human beings, we are tempted to idolatry in the you know, the cult of personality. And, you know, sometimes we take sides blindly just because somebody's our friend and we may not either know the other side or even always know when um, the fight is over, so to speak, when brothers have laid down their arms and have embraced one another um, in, in Christ. And um, so, yeah, so kind of, you know, you know, if there's any indication that if the Colossians had known about that division, um, certainly saying to welcome Mark shows that all is forgiven, all is well. We get some other um, pretty uh, insightful information. You know, again, what's in it for us? How, how do we learn from it? That's sometimes a little difficult in the what I call the housekeeping sections. But 14, Luke, the beloved physician, which, um, you know, we, we know who that is, which is kind of neat. He's with him now, as does Demos. They both greet you guys. Then he says, give uh, my greetings to the brothers or the brethren, um, the, that is the, the brothers and sisters at uh, Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. Just another little reminder here about how these Christians are meeting, right? Uh, we, we hear from Romans and other places. So Nympha's house is where the, where the church is meeting. It reminds us that churches are not just buildings. <laughs> in fact, they are primarily not buildings. They're the people of God. Um, and at this time, they're still meeting in houses. We, we need to be reminded of that every now and then. We do. And there are other places, too, where um, where the epistles, like I think it's third, it's either second John or third John, you know, John writes, uh, you know, to the elect lady and the church that meets at, at the house that, um, yeah, that, that that sometimes these communities were small enough that they could meet in a house and also it was not uncommon for wealthy Roman women to um, be patrons of a congregation. 
Um, I don't know if they were the LWML of the day or, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but very often, you know, um, you know, Lydia is another example from Max 16, but a lot of times these, these leading women were providing safe space in which the churches could, um, grow you know, and flourish. And as you're saying that, I just, it just popped in my head. So I wonder, I bet that there were some women, uh, especially the women who are either widows or wealthy and they have these houses. Uh, we don't hear about their husbands sometimes, and maybe it's because they're widows, but it just occurred to me that I bet there's some in history, some Roman guy who sees the church meeting in his house as just like his wife's book club. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's like, he's like, I don't know what's going on, but she has a bunch of people over like every Sunday and they just sit around and eat bread and drink wine and talk about this book. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know why I thought of that. But, but what we see here is that God is using all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life to continue to promote uh, the gospel. And I just think it's great. And of course, how, many, how many husbands have been brought to faith throughout the centuries uh, because of the faithfulness of their wives? Thank, thank you, wives out there, for your faithfulness. Amen. Yeah, that happens. Um, the Paul specifically addresses that in First Corinthians seven too. So, in terms of why Christian women should not divorce their husbands just because their husband is an unbeliever, right. because you know, for such a time as this, God may have placed them there, and so that they can also bring their their husbands to the Lord Jesus. And yes, it happens so often. Well, I'm sure we could keep chewing on all of this, but I'm getting close to the end of the show, so I just want to hit 18. So Paul writes, and, and we, the indication here is that he's now taken the pen from his scribe, and it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So tell us about that. He's done this before. Why is he suddenly you know, taking the pen from the professional scribe and writing this last line himself. Well, certainly it is similar to a signature in our, um, in our day, and it gives authenticity to the document. Um, the use of an amanuensis or a secretary, you know, somebody to whom you would dictate a letter was a very common practice in the first century and I sometimes scholars conjecture that perhaps the amanuensis is even the co-author that Paul will often list in the first verse or two of, of these epistles. But yeah, it's so it gives authenticity. It shows a personal care. Um, and, and, and he always, you know, will, will end with some, you know, final um, blessing too. you know, here he says, grace be with you very simple, very to the point. Um, and remember my chains, you know, he is in prison. Um, elsewhere in the new Testament, it says, remember those in prison as though in prison with them. And so, um, it's also a reminder, um, you know, sometimes despite the hostility that we feel for the church here in the West, um, increasingly in our woke culture, the reality is that we still have it a lot better with a lot more freedom than um, sometimes Christians do in places that are communist or Islamic regimes. And it's good for us to remember them also. And remember that um, our brothers and sisters around the world, some of them literally risk their life to gather um, in worship. And um, 
and, and so Paul gives us a good reminder of that too. I agree. I agree, brother. All right. Well, anything left as we, as we finish up that you want to leave the people with? Um, I don't know. It's that's it's okay. Great. If you're done, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. It's been it's, so it's nice. A beautiful letter. Yeah. It's been so nice having you on the show. So I'd like to officially thank my guest folks. It's been the Reverend Chris Mathis. He's the pastor of Epiphany Lutheran church in Castle Rock, Colorado. Thanks again. And you know, don't wait another year before coming back on the show. Yeah, I look forward to another invitation. Thank you, Pastor Boo. Excellent, excellent. Well, friends, tomorrow's Friday, and as we end our work week anyway, we're going to start a new book. We'll be shifting gears and heading back into the Old Testament with the Book of Lamentations. Now, Lamentations portrays Jerusalem's profound suffering and desolation after its destruction in a series of five poems of lament. These are acrostic poems, meaning all of them are going to be uh, 22 verses long, roughly, and uh, and are going to be, or or I should say, multiples of 22. There's one that's 66. But these uh, go by each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they portray Jerusalem's profound suffering by personifying the city as a lonely widow, once bustling and vibrant, but now abandoned and in mourning. The chapter vividly describes the city's grief in chapter one, uh, the captivity of its people, the scorn from its enemies, and it emphasizes Jerusalem's fall as a consequence of its own sin and rebellion against God. There is hope, there is gospel in it, uh, but we have to get to about chapter three before we find it. But we will absolutely cover that and more tomorrow when we gather around a go- a God's word again. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Yeah.